Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles, an extra book shambles that we're now doing on a weekly basis with science authors and also scientists, in addition to the usual weekly episode of Book Shambles. You can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash book shambles. I know I always say forward slash, but that's because I'm 51 years old. Here's the conversation. Hello and welcome to Science Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. On today's episode, Robin is chatting to Becky Rag Sykes. Her new book, Kindred, is out now, which is all about Neanderthals or Neanderthals. I never know. Some people say Neanderthals. I say Neanderthals. I'm probably wrong. I usually am. Before we get to that conversation, let you know if you have not seen our big news that we announced in the last week, this year's Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, our annual science, music, comedy, variety nights for charity. Unfortunately, we have had to cancel those uh, because of COVID-19, which is probably no surprise at this point. But instead, we're going to do all seven of the cancelled shows live and in a row, back to back for 24 plus hours straight. We're going to broadcast live from King's Place. There are a very small handful of socially distanced tickets available to come and be in a very socially distanced audience. But if you can't come down, the whole thing is going to be streamed live and free to watch online as well. But it is still for charity, so we're encouraging you to donate to buy a virtual ticket at crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons. And you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to find out all about who's on other ways to donate, how to get tickets and everything else. So it starts midday, December 12. Robin will be hosting the entire time. We're going to have some in-person co-hosts like Helen Chesky and Beck Hill and Josie Long. There's going to be lots of people Skyping and Zooming and appearing virtually as well as in person as well. People like Brian Cox and Chris Hadfield and Sophie Ellis-Bexter and Mark Watson and Chris Jackson and Sharon D. Clark, loads of people. So go to the website, have a look at that. And a reminder as well of our Patreon. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. If you are a Patreon supporter of the Cosmic Shambles Network, you'll be getting an extended edition of this episode. And if you are not a Patreon supporter, you can become one by going to patreon.com slash bookshambles. And also to say our regular Sunday Science Q&A show, which is live at 3pm British time every Sunday, hosted by Robin and Helen Chersky. The most recent episode of that was with two of Becky's fellow Trailblazer founders, Susie Pillar-Birch and Tori Herridge. So you can go to our YouTube channel and watch that, or you can listen to it on the Science Channels podcast. Time to get to the conversation now. Here is Robin and Becky. Hello, welcome to Science Shambles, and today we have, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful book, and it is about uh, particularly, uh, well of course all, all areas of science have, have uh, are filled with particularly interesting ideas, but the Neanderthal idea uh, and our understanding of what it was to be a Neanderthal and our connection with Neanderthals feels like something which is very 21st century, it's very much been in the last, I would say I suppose 15 years that there have been incredible Damascene moments of, uh, of, of comprehension and connection and uh, Rebecca Rag Sykes has written this wonderful book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art and it does cover all of those things, uh, described by Brian Cox as beautiful, evocative and authoritative but you can't trust him and I know full 
well of that. Uh, but it is. It's a very beautiful book. Hello, uh, Rebecca. Hello. Um, I want to start off by, I mean, in terms of evocative, that opening imagination that you, you imagine, something that I've thought about quite a lot in terms of human beings, that moment where the final Neanderthal stands in the landscape looking at the sky, realising this is the end. That is, I mean, in terms of a beautiful moment of existential anxiety and also at the same time of a, a creature that, from what we can understand, you know, it, it was, here is, here is a, 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 a curious, intelligent creature facing its own extinction. To start there, I, I just thought it was very beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> I, when I put all the narrative sections into this book, because obviously it's completely rooted in science and I want to to get across all the crazy detail of, of what we do in archaeology but I also wanted to to help people really sort of engage in on another level with the past and so I put these narrative sections in and, and even a couple of poems and um, but I wanted to I guess begin with the end of things or at least one imagining of the end of things um, to sort of get that bit out the way, as it were, because you know, for so long we've we framed the Neanderthals by their disappearance, and for me, that's one of the least interesting things about them. So I kind of wanted to have that at the beginning, and then dive into the rest of of their sort of existence. But when it, it was a little bit sort of of a of a fantasy, really, because we don't know when or where the last Neanderthal was, or even if there was like a last in that sense. You know, the the last Neanderthals technically were probably genetic hybrids who who were alive and their grandchildren and their grandchildren so it's it's a vision of of our sort of beliefs about neanderthals in some ways as well as thinking about the archaeology how do you think that realization of of our connection as you talk about in the book, you know there there, there was a point, and certainly even in your in your, your your own career, you've had moments where to start talking about these connections has been people going, "Oh, what are you going to do? Right, clan of the cave bear," you know, and then there's there's suddenly there there is a moment where everything that that you, many of the ideas that you've been suggesting, you know, we start to get the genetic evidence. And how much do you feel that? this new sense of our connection to Neanderthals has also reignited the whole of the science around this? I think it's huge. I mean, the the whole history of, of our investigation and our sort of conceptualization of Neanderthals um, as another sort of type of human, that's got 160 years, you know, we've, we've known about them. Um, but it really is only, I think, the last sort of three decades when archaeological science as a whole has really sort of begun to develop and we sorted we we began to really understand how the archaeological record works how it can be disturbed how we have to really keep all the tiny stuff and, and assess entire sites um but then only a decade ago um as you say we had the confirmation from the nuclear genome um that there had been interbreeding between early homo sapiens so you know our direct ancestors and the neanderthals so that transformed things for i think for the public genuinely um neanderthals went from being something that people have always been intrigued by and fascinated by um but they were somewhat at arm's length you know they were sort of cousins who went a bit wrong and you know we can kind of ignore them um but suddenly they were 
directly in our ancestry they were and not not you know far back you know a million years they were it was you know 50,000 years it's not very long um in in terms of human evolution um, and i think that knowledge of of a direct connection that their dna is like in the bodies of most people alive today bar um sub-saharan african people uh, from that background although it turns out they may have a bit that, that came in later from from a sort of different population uh, encounters much later in prehistory but the knowledge that they are actually still here has really shifted people's desire to engage i think with who they were and and what the reality of the archaeology says about them rather than sort of our notions of of their disappearance as tinting everything we we saw about them and thought about them so that has really really shifted but i think it also was a surprise for the scientific community for sure i mean there had been you know debates for a long time and different models about sort of where the neanderthals fit um, and some researchers believed that there was always sort of very long term connectedness um, on huge scales um, across Eurasia and uh, within Africa and sort of different hominin lineages arose in those different regions, always connected versus what became more of a dominant model, which people have probably heard of the out of Africa model, which suggested that um, the Neanderthals were um, a more ancient sort of stock in Eurasia, whereas we Homo sapiens had evolved in Africa and then left quite late, dispersed out and replaced the Neanderthals with no interbreeding. Um, so that was the model. So the genetic um, sort of the revelation of it was a big surprise to a lot of people, I think. And um, I mean, scientists got their heads around it quite quickly, but it, it was still like a real, oh, okay, yeah, we have to we have to change what we're thinking of it now. So they, it had a huge impact, yeah. Is there anything within that that idea of interbreeding? Was there somewhere, obviously much of that idea that we didn't interbreed, I'm sure was based on, on you know, solid science, but is there also that level of a sense of, we would rather it was not so because there have been you know throughout science there are certain ideas uh where it's like I, I really you know i want it to be the steady state theory you know with Hoyle, it was like i've spoken to people say that was the thing is a great scientist but he had a tremendous desire as well that it um, steady- <clears throat> i'm not sure i think i think the complication is that um the anatomy of neanderthals does look very different still right up until the time that they disappear but there were hints in some of the um the skulls and the remains that perhaps there were features that were looking a little bit less robust a bit more like homo sapiens and so that was one of the things that was stimulating people to to think that but it did also go back to sort of um you know the mid 20th century and, and different scientific models of human evolution and which one potentially you were sort of raised in as a scholar what your scholarly background was and, and things like that so I think there's lots of different things but I think overall there has historically certainly um, in the 19th century in the early 20th century there was a definite um, keenness to to sort of shove them aside a little bit and be like well they're nothing to do with us you know um whereas now i think you know people are quite 
fascinated by having that connection um and they're they're interested in it but in terms of the ease with which it was accepted i think people were surprised but then they got on with it you know it was a new exciting thing to tackle and to integrate into okay what is our data the rest of the data how do, how do we fit this into this new knowledge you know? Well, that's, I mean, it's in- interesting. Well, I think we talked about this when we did genetic shambles a few weeks ago, which was, you know, many of people in my generation were brought up with the, uh, just the line of, of evolution. There's Australopithecus, there's Homo erectus, there's Neanderthal, there's, you know, and, and they're, they're, it's just a nice straight line. And then, of course, in this book, you have the uh, incredibly complex, and I know we can't really call it a tree anymore because it grows in directions that no tree does grow, but... This is it seems to be in terms of the level of change of the number of different hominids. I'm trying to remember there was one in particular again, another one. Uh, a dry, dry, well, I think this is pre uh, probably hominid, a dryopithecus. Uh, yeah, that's an ape, yeah. yeah. Um, but all that... of the as we look at all those connections, it, it, it's it, it creates a very different landscape to view. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean. Although you do get sort of human evolution stories in the news now and then, I mean, the Neanderthals dominate it. And that's also interesting that, you know, they are basically guaranteed headlines, um, whatever it's about. Um, There is a little bit of sort of other human evolution that gets into the public mindset. But I think people uh, would be surprised to say exactly how many hominin species we now have, you know, going back like five, six million years. It's a lot. It's like 15 or something. Um, and although in many cases the material that we're dealing with there is quite fragmentary, um, it's it's a much richer picture than it was a few decades ago. And so I think fitting ourselves and the Neanderthals into that world, we, we can see just that the richness and the diversity of the hominin sort of history and, and, and all these different forms that were springing up and appearing and living and doing their own thing. Um, that I think is a much more exciting view than it used to be. And also, as you say, with with the the traditional the tree, which was really a very nineteenth century notion that that you sort of begin and and then you have this strong trunk and and it ends up with us at the crown. Um, you know, it's very eugenics ish. Um, actually, what we sort of like to say now is that it's more like a massive river you know where you have uh, big channels that that split off but then they come back and some channels just disappear off into the soil and and other ones rejoin and you know there's there's different speeds that the river's moving so i think that's a that's a better way to think about um the the different connections and and sort of the deep pattern of human evolution yeah, I like you to like revolutionaries. The Neanderthals have uprooted our dynastic tree. I thought it was a, a lovely way of uh, putting. Now, you you talked about the, the the physical differences, and this this fascinates me about how we put together the picture. For instance, of you, you you talk about the hands. The hands are tremendously powerful hands, but from what we understand, they also uh, I think basically said you know if you put your hand in a Neanderthal's hand, would it crush it? No, the dexterity is there uh the 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 ability to judge etc um how do we build up that picture how do, how do we get that sense of those capabilities um well for the for the sort of the basic anatomy and how their bodies would would have you know functioned um there has been enormous amounts of work on neanderthal remains because i mean neanderthals were the first hominin that we realize what a hominin was we've known them the longest um but we also have 
a, a vast amount of material to work with. If you just count, you know, every piece of bone or tooth individually that we have, it's thousands. And they relate um, really to somewhere probably between 100 to 200 different individuals. So they're not all complete skeletons, um, but that is a lot. That's a big sample. Um, and it goes you know, through a significant span of time. We start to see Neanderthal anatomy emerging around 350,000 years, something like that, um, all the way through to about 40,000. So it's a large span of time. We have a lot of material to deal with. And we do have um, a number of really quite complete skeletons that go from you know newborn infants tiny tiny babies all the way through to um adults who were really sort of um past middle age um you know well into 50s plus um and in that sense the the whole range of a neanderthal life is there it's just we have to kind of join the links between all of those different sources um of data and and that means that we can look at um how they grew you know what their development was like um all the way through life we can look in detail with modern um sort of cellular analysis and also biomechanics we can model how they walked, how their muscles would have worked. Um, you know, you can look right into the detail of, of their teeth and, and see not only the, the different phases of growth in their teeth, but what they use their teeth for. Like you can look for the different um, scratches and polishes to do with food, but also to do with other things they use their mouths for. Um, you can look at the uh, the tartar on their teeth that's preserved and, you know, find microfossils in there of what they ate and even DNA. So the the level of detail we can sort of extract from what is quite a tattered archive in some ways is really astounding and it does mean that overall we have a very good understanding of the complete neanderthal body although as we advance with things like biomechanical um, analysis and sort of examining the the structure of the bones at a cellular level we are getting better at understanding how the body itself functioned so some ideas uh, about sort of for example why they had large noses um, those have shifted uh, somewhat from thinking that perhaps it was more to do with warming up the air like an air conditioner thing because they lived in cold climates. Well, they didn't always live in cold. That's one thing. But it's now uh, sort of different approaches to things um, to to how we're sort of framing Neanderthals. It's shifting more to say, well, perhaps this was more just about getting loads of air into their bodies because we know their bodies were very energy hungry and they lived intensive lifestyles, intensive hunter gatherer lifestyles. And we can see that from the muscle mass on the body. So perhaps it's about respiration, you know, and they, it's it's or it's both things together. So the, the complexity of the modeling and of our assumptions, I think, is also really changing things. I wonder when you you were just talking about, for instance, finding you know remains of babies, and uh, I talked to Sarah Parkak, who you may well know, Sarah's a, a yeah archaeologist, uh, space archaeologist. I like as as you may, but people can look that up and find out more fascinating stuff. But she she's talked about the fact that as time has gone on, she has found sometimes the empathy and the connection more emotionally difficult. Uh, that when she's found a you know been dealing with perhaps the you know the remains of a baby from from an ancient Egyptian site, that connection has felt stronger and stronger with her. And I wondered now. I know we're going back you know much further with what you're doing with, but again we've got this new connection. Do you find a different sense of empathy with with what you're dealing with? I guess 
I think if you asked a lot of archaeologists, you know, um, men or women, I think a lot of them would say once you become a parent, excavating or sort of examining the tiny, tiny little bodies of kids that, you know, died too soon. Yeah, that's that has a very different sort of feeling to it um, because you can't help but imagine your own child at that stage of life, you know. Um, but I think also I, once you sort of understand quite how close in evolutionary terms to us Neanderthals actually are, it's kind of impossible not to think that they experienced grief at a very basic, you know, fundamental level at the death of an infant. Um, you know, I mean, like, although to to people saying, oh, Neanderthals, um, you know, emerged 350,000 years ago and, and they died out or, you know, they, they disappeared from the fossil record 40,000 years ago, that feels like, oh, it's a long time ago. What's that got to do with with how we feel in our sophisticated social world now? But if you look at our closest living relatives, which are chimpanzees and bonobos, um, it's abundantly clear that death is like a shattering thing for them emotionally. Um, and, you know, you can see the, the closer the relationships in the group to the person, to the, to the individual rather that has died, the more time they will spend with the body. They'll spend hours with it and they will investigate the body. You know, they try and sort of poke it and see if they can get a reaction. But after that, you can see that they sort of shift into an understanding that something has gone. And it's very emotional. There's outbursts of emotion, then sometimes they're quiet. But with infants, um, those bodies are carried around very often, sometimes for weeks. Um, and I think if we can see that in, you know, apes, which we know have very sophisticated social um, structures and, and intensely emotional lives, albeit they branched off six million years from us, Neanderthals are so much closer to us evolutionarily. So I think it would it would be bizarre if there was not some kind of deep um, emotional trauma and mourning at the loss of an infant. Um, and it does make me wonder, for example, as I say in the book, you know, there's debates over what Neanderthals in general did with the dead. Um, but one of the things that is striking is that we do have some very complete um babies um and certainly for newborns it's it's quite strange to find newborn like skeletons lying on their side at the bottom of a cave um because they can't roll themselves into that position normally it's not like a natural death thing and you can't help but wonder was that body carried around for some time before it was finally left in that place as you might expect um rather than just being dumped like trash it does not look in any of the sort of the, the sites where we have either adult bodies that are relatively complete or infants that that these were just sort of left something's going on um and so i think certainly for if we're trying to access emotions and reactions to um to death as an event i don't know about mortality because that presupposes a, an understanding of I guess something beyond or I don't know but but certainly death as a as an impact on a group and on individuals yeah I think um the the tiny little bodies resonate with us today but I think it also must have done then too 
I, I wanted to quickly just talk, mention as well. You, you were a co-founder of Trailblazers, uh, which you know was basically to, to uh, heighten the the understanding and the knowledge of uh, of women who've been involved in more, the digging sciences. Um, Paleontology, geology, yeah. And how much is that? I mean, that that's over ten years now, isn't it? That that Trailblazers been. Uh... Uh, we set up twenty twelve. I think. Oh, so, a guy. Yeah. It feels like you've been around. And I, I suppose <laughs> maybe because right from the start, it feels. Um, how how is that? change do you think the the picture for people as well because i certainly for me i, I found the moment that I, I started seeing stuff it was a whole you know some of the photos that you were putting up of people who are long forgotten and yet the work that they did uh is you know are standing steps and foundation stones of uh of, of our knowledge yeah i mean we we set up um well it was a tumblr first who remembers tumblers but um yeah <laughs> now it's a website uh, trailblazers.com and it essentially it's we wanted to have an archive showing that although you might have heard of the odd woman archaeologist most people have heard of gertrude bell you know um but it's it's the the real breadth that there were actually just masses of them right from the beginning and they were active in in sort of key discoveries like dorothy garrett for example massive uh sort of neanderthal specialist um but we also wanted to show that there are direct connections between those women that they were not working in isolation you know they weren't anomalous that there were these sort of research collaborations and mentoring networks that they set up themselves um, and that still sort of coming through today in the generations of new researchers so that was what that was our main aim really with trailblazers to help people reimagine what an archaeologist looks like then and now um, and I think something that's been really nice is that a lot of the material we get because we have little mini biographies um it's submitted by people you know that that archive we began has become like a community endeavor and, and people who, who aren't archaeologists they just send you know little biographies to us and, and then we help them find the the images and get the the permissions to use the images and everything so i think it's it's been important in highlighting the women's role but at the same time what is abundantly clear is that most of them then and now um were white and pretty privileged um you know certainly in the 1930s there's a very particular kind of person that gets to dig in the near east um whereas today um that is that's shifting slowly um but we we really want the archive to to reflect you know the the reality of women in all those uh, fields much better and it still hasn't quite got there yet so that's definitely work for us to keep doing and yeah it's it's great work and it's really i would recommend everyone listening to this to go and have a look at that site and you will find yourself reading then for the rest of the day and going off on all manner of different tangents um the uh just quickly as well because of uh today in the newspapers there was uh the story of the, this was there was a friend of of mine who said oh i'm really glad you're talking about neanderthals because apparently i've got uh my neanderthal gene it's really kind of and then she broke today and she went oh god now i found out that having this neanderthal kind of uh, part of my genome is an absolute disaster so what's your initial reaction to the the story about um COVID-19 and and people yeah and this is reported today although actually the the preprint which is like a draft paper that you put online was done months ago um and it was reported then too um essentially it is um an identification I think of um a gene that appears to be involved in some of the more severe COVID uh sort of physiological reactions appears to have been inherited from Neanderthals. For me, 
I think it's a really good example of Neanderthals just being like media frenzy. Um, you know, people know they're clickbait. Um, it's an interesting fact, but I don't think it tells us much clinically at all. And I don't think it tells us much specifically about Neanderthals either. So it's interesting to know, but um, I think the, the media attention is because it's Neanderthals. <laughs> They're A-list, you know, <laughs> for the hominins. So yeah, I think um, I don't. I don't think people should worry. I don't think people should uh, let it transform their ideas about themselves or Neanderthals. So the the good news is Neanderthals are now clickbait. The bad news <laughs> is the information on that piece of clickbait may well be. Well, there, there is an article on it in the Guardian. I think that at the end of that, they have a, a sort of a nice caveat from somebody saying, "Yeah, it's interesting, but." You know, where does it? it doesn't really change much at the moment. We st we still got to cope with this situation. Maybe if we think about Neanderthals and and our heritage and and their legacy as being one of immense resilience, you know, that I think is an interesting thing to think about. That that you know their survival and their success, and that's what we need. You know, we're going not only into this this situation with the the pandemic, but what is coming here now and coming in terms of climate um, the Neanderthals survived a world that was two to four degrees warmer than present um, which is exactly where we're heading for so you know maybe maybe that's also something we need to think about. So uh, Rebecca thank you very much Kindred Neanderthal Life Love Death and Art uh, is out now if you're in the UK and uh, in the US it's out I think that's 27th of October is it 27th yes. of October 27th of October um, so uh, yeah it's really uh, it, it I, I just love the, I think there's you know all these books which create just means that each landscape you look at again that connection that yeah. sense of of this this very strange river because even when you describe it like a river it's a really bloody weird river, isn't it? When you it's a river of blood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was another of my favorite. This is uh, a phrases that I've, I've noted down. Where is it? The uh, at one point where you talk about steeped in eldritch vibes. That was <laughs> yeah. one of my favorites as well. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. You can become a Patreon supporter by going to CosmicShambles.com and clicking the link right there to go to Patreon. Rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts if you would be so kind. That really does help us out immensely. Check out all the stuff around Nine Lessons and everything else that's going on. Have a great week. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.